week on Sight Unseen, we heard the voice of Pico Iyer, journalist, writer, traveler, biographer, and speaker. Iyer was here in San Francisco for a talk he was giving with Dr. Paul Ekman about their individual experiences with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and what we might learn from those as individuals and as a society. Hosted by the Asia Society and moderated by Shambhala Sun, the talk reflected on how Ayer and Ekman had met the Dalai Lama, what they learned from him, and the legacy he is creating. Ayer met the Dalai Lama when he was 17. The Dalai Lama was virtually unknown then, and Ayer's father, a professional philosopher, wanted Ayer to meet him. Several years after that meeting, Ayer became a journalist. He started working for Time magazine, and he began following the actions and movements of the Dalai Lama. The result is The Open Road, the global journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. The Open Road is based on Ayer's travels with the Dalai Lama over the past 30 years. Aside from writing 11 books, Ayer has been a journalist for Time magazine for 27 years. He's written for a vast number of publications, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Harper's, and he's traveled the world. My name is Sani Katenjian. This is Sight Unseen, a weekly program that speaks with artists of all different mediums, uncovering the unseen aspects of their work and life. This is part two of a two-part interview. In part one, Ayer reflected on what he was like at 17, what he's learned from the Dalai Lama, such as patience and remembering to turn off the lights in a room. And he shares that while he's not a Buddhist, he's taken what he can from the many religions he has studied. That said, he reminds us that the Dalai Lama believes that one must become immersed in one religion, rather than taking from the smorgasbord of every other religion. Here, I mention a story I'm reminded of. Stay tuned for that and more on this week's Sight Unseen. It reminds me of a conversation that we had at uh, Christmas a few years ago, uh, because I come from a multilingual family where many people in my family speak six or seven languages. And um, it's, it's the nature of Armenians to have been um, uh, diasporas. And uh, there was an argument at the table, is it better to learn one language, but extremely well? Or is it better to know 12 languages, you know, kind of? And uh, even doesn't, I still think about that quite a bit. I'm, I'm more of the 12 languages kind of type, but I think there's a real beauty in truly knowing the language that you use and that you love. And, uh, you know, so that since we're talking about language, I didn't think there would be this segue, but since we're talking about language, I've read that you've sort of reflected on your early writings and you've said, oh, I would have done this differently, I would do that differently. Mm-hmm. How have you observed yourself change and grow through your writing? Not how has your writing changed and grown, but how have you had this perspective on yourself as you look back to your writing from 30 years ago and see it evolve over over each year, you know, how, how does that allow you to see how you as a person has, has evolved? 
I think really that's the great beauty of writing is that you have tangible evidence, data to consult. Because just as you say, most of us reflect back on our lives and try to see how, how we've changed or how the arc of our life has gone. And it's very difficult when all this stuff is just swimming around in your head and you don't remember the dates. And it's, it's just a blur and you can't even remember if it was before you met that person or after. But you're, as you say, I have exhibit A, B and C all down in front of me. And I think that's the beauty um, of writing for me. For example, I often say to my wife that when first I met her 22 years ago arriving in Kyoto, I wrote a whole book about that and I'm so glad now, and I think she is too, that I have done in writing as concrete mementos everything that we were saying and thinking then, because some of it looks strange to us now, most of it actually looks very familiar to us now, we haven't moved on that much <laughs> um, but at least there's no ambiguity and we're not saying, what was it like did we go to that place and what would we talk about there it is, transcribed as if in a video camera, and so I'm very grateful for that and uh, I suppose I, I often go back and reread uh, my my old things in order to force myself to to do something different. For me, writing itself is the biggest travel. It's a form of adventure, and I'm always hungry for um, the. the the next turn for what's around the next corner. And I think all of us really carry one fundamental question with us through our lives. And in a writer's case, it's very evident because you see that the, the form, the costume from book to book changes dramatically, but really some theme is, um, is carrying along all the way through. So um, I'm, I'm traveling and traveling and always looking for new forms and trying to write about utterly different things in utterly different ways, knowing that deep down that's only really going to be a way for pushing deeper into whatever the two or three questions that keep, will keep me company for life uh, are. And one of the interesting things about writing is you find that your cares and your concerns are very different than what you imagine. Uh, I'm sure many writers have said this to you, artists, and so uh, I think I'm writing about the Cuban Revolution and about mystical Islam and then about globalism and then about the Dalai Lama, but suddenly something is coming into all those books that I didn't even know was in me that is probably the most fundamental thing in me. So uh, I, I think I, I see writing as a means um, to, to grow and learn about oneself as well as about the world. And that's its only justification, because these days it seems like an outdated technology. And I feel strange you know, putting words down on the page, because it's hard for them to keep up with the, the, the constant flash of, and, and jangle of, of images and the new media, which is so much more exciting and alluring and, and paced to the modern moment. But writing as a tool for self-understanding is still one of the best reasons for doing it I can think of. So what is that? What is your question? That was the question that you carry around with you. I mean, I, I, I'm sure a listener would say, please ask that. So, so yeah, what is, what is that question? Hmm, I set myself up for that, didn't I? You sure did. When I was a little kid, my favorite book was uh, Narcissus and Goldmund by uh, Hermann Hesse. One character was a monk and one was a traveler. So it goes back to one of your earlier questions. And you mentioned The Quiet American, which has been sort of my, my ad hoc fallen Bible for many years. And that, as you know, is almost about the dance between innocence and skepticism. And it's also about the dance between England and America. And since I did grow up, moving back and forth from the age of nine, several times a year, between England and America. England, very sophisticated, rigorous culture, but reluctant to believe in anything. California, uh, uh, a wonderfully open culture and excited to believe in everything. I suppose I've tried to put those two cultures and, and ways of approaching the world together and to try to come to some resolution 
between them in myself because I admire the, the rigor and questioningness of the old world and of Britain, and I really admire the freshness and uh, eagerness to learn of California. And so when I write, let's say, about the Dalai Lama, one of the things that so inspires me is that, as I say, he's a hyper-realist, and yet he's extremely confident about the way that... W- and to bring hope and realism together, to, to be both a realist and an optimist, seems to me pretty much the ideal. And when I write about Graham Greene, one of the things, because I'm writing a book on him now, one of the things that appeals to me clearly is that he saw the world as acutely as everyone, and he saw it in all its fallenness and squalor and desperation and terror, and yet he always held on to something to believe in. He, w- he was a believer in some level through, in the midst of the, the horrors of Haiti or um, the Vietnam War. And so I suppose looking at the world clearly and undeludedly and still finding something to believe in and to have hope about, that's probably, I notice most of my projects always seem to come back to that. And it's probably a way of piecing together that commute that I made from all the time I was growing up. I think Dr. Eichmann said something really beautiful yesterday, or maybe it was you, I don't remember exactly who said it, but that the Dalai Lama's fallback is always trust. Mm -hmm. And for so many people, that's so foreign, Mm -hmm. for their fallback to be trust. Mm -hmm. We're so scared to trust. Had your father not introduced you to the Dalai Lama at 17, do you think that he would have been someone that you would have followed for all this time? I mean, would that have ever happened do you, do you think that would have ever happened or you know it, it wouldn't have and maybe you would have followed someone else well i i i follow him only physically not completely spiritually as as you were saying but i think it might well have happened like many people i had a very strong keen fascination with tibet from an early age and one reason that my father was so keen to introduce me to the dalai lama is that when i was two years old uh as the news of the Dalai Lama's flight from Tibet to India was coming crackling over our scratchy wireless radio in Oxford, England, I was really paying rapt attention to it. And my father noticed that I was never listening to other news events. But something about that story of the young king who was fleeing over the highest mountains in the world to try to come to a new life really held me. And as a little boy, I'd read Tintin in Tibet and and then progress up to the Lost Horizon and the, the more exalted works. But um, I think many people in this position, I always had that fascination with the Himalayas and with Tibet, to the point that when I go to India now, which is the country of my ancestors, I completely ignore India and go straight to the Tibetan sections. So I think um, one way or another, I might well have found myself, found my way to Tibet anyway, and found my way to the Dalai Lama. And one thing I've noticed is that most journalists who go and write a long piece about him never really walk away from that. Uh, something has changed in them whereby they feel so uh, concerned about Tibet or so suddenly bonded to uh, this eminence in a way that they don't with all the other political and spiritual leaders they talk to that Tibet suddenly becomes a big concern. And I I can think of three or four journalists who went for just to write a profile and then gave up their lives for five years to write a whole book on behalf of the Tibetans. So I think I might well have been one of those people anyway. And it's lovely what you say about um, his interest in trust or in what Dr. Ekman said. And I think that's because he really sees the whole world as a family. Uh, and it's not just Buddhist teaching, and it's not what's just uh, love your neighbor as yourself. He feels it in his bones. When he meets you, when he meets me, when he meets somebody on the street in San Francisco, he instantly is seeing them the way he would see his own brother and sister. And that means that although we all have friction with our brothers and sisters, we do at some level feel we're 
our, our goals are the same, and there is some degree of trust and connection, in one hopes in most cases. And I think if you really regard the rest of the world as your family, and I think he really does, then the idea of trust doesn't even enter your mind. Um, everyone is, 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 is part of your extended identity, and to help them is only to help yourself, really, as, as he often says. If you really believe that everyone is interdependent, which is, the, I think, the core notion of, of Buddhism, then everything else follows, such as trust and compassion and, uh, and, and seeing everyone's needs as your own need. You know, I think one of the reasons that is so it, it, in, in Buddhism is that there's this whole relinquishing of your own sense of identity or ego. And that was something else that came up last night, this issue of status anxiety, which I'm completely fascinated by. And um, do, you, do you suffer from status anxiety? You know, it's dangerous to say this, but I would say not so much. Um, I, when I was 29, uh, I was living on Park Avenue in New York, and I had, a, I think, a pretty good job writing world affairs ma stories for Time magazine. And I was taking my vacations in Burma and Morocco and El Salvador and every exotic place I could think of. I was single in New York City, no dependents, no responsibilities. Really, I, I suppose I'd constructed the kind of life that a little boy might have dreamt of. And I left that to um, all of it, to go in and live in a um, temple in the back streets of Kyoto. And so I think even in my 20s, something in me was knowing that uh, I'd be happy to give up security in order to get freedom. I was happier in a small room than a big room. And most of all, that uh, having a nice business card and getting a glittering resume and, and getting an, the nice salary that came with it, none of that was going to make me as happy as being loose in the world in a very foreign place and uh, trying to explore it. And so uh, I think it's hard for us often to work out where our happiness lies. But somehow maybe because I was in the, the, heart, the epicenter of world power, as it seemed to me, and I was traveling to places very far away from that, very early on I saw, well, I would go to, let's say, um, in those days, India or Tibet, uh, where people are materially very disadvantaged, have no business cards, of course, <laughs> and yet there was an energy and um, a, a generosity I would find often in those people that I didn't find in New York City or in Santa Barbara, my official hometown, where most people are living in gorgeous mansions and on their fourth marriages and going to see the ter therapist every day. So I think the official trappings of uh, status I found quite easy to give up, maybe because I was lucky enough to have found my way into a nice position. It, it was very s simple to walk away from it, and I've never once regretted it. And I know all the time that I was working in Rockefeller Center um, with this nice expense account on the 25th floor overlooking Manhattan, most of me was wishing I was in Tibet or Kyoto. And since I've been in Tibet and Kyoto and more or less made my life there, I've never once wished I was back uh, in 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 the world of, of business cards or high salaries. So I think that hasn't been such a, such a concern of mine. I'm, uh, in, in my little neighborhood in Japan, I'm known as the parasite <laughs> because you know, I'm the only male in the neighborhood who doesn't uh, wake up, put on a three-piece suit, and go to the office, as in Japan they especially do. I'm the disheveled fool who's walking the wrong way down a one-way street, unshaven, um, with nothing to do except play ping pong. And actually, that, that really suits me. And um, I think I'd much rather feel some uh, happiness, freedom, and the, have the time and space to give myself to my family and to people and things I care for than to be on the, the, the fast track in Manhattan, say. Well, you know, I, I had earlier thought of this question that um, I've often defined people as either travelers or settlers. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've, I've kind of put them in those, oh, you're a traveler. Oh, you're more the settling type. Do you think that's naive? Do you think that's true? And if, if it is true, what are the characteristics of the traveler type, as you've come across, I'm sure, many? I'm really learning a lot from you. You've given me, that's the second thing you've said that I'm going to carry away with me and, and think about for a lot. I've never thought of it like that, though I have heard that children who grow up traveling a lot, let's say uh, in army families or in diplomatic families, that when they come of age, it almost falls 50%, that half of them say, I've traveled so much in my life, I never want to move again, and very quickly get married and get into a house and never move again, and the other half are travelers for life. So in some ways, it plays out, practically speaking, as travelers versus settlers in those mobile families. Uh, but I suppose, yeah, maybe it's, it's a ch whether you want security or novelty, it could be put like that. And yes, as you mentioned earlier, how much the sense of belonging is important to you. For example, I probably realized in my own case at a fairly early age that I would never be very good at being a part of a community and um, never uh, good at, uh, at staying in one place or staying in one genre, or that I was fundamentally the movement in my life had created a movement in my being that was always hungry for the next challenge and adventure. So I, w I would have to be a traveler. If I were a settler, I would always be chafing against that if I tried to settle down. So I think, I mean, that's a, that's a very stimulating and, and fruitful way of thinking of the world. And I think the most important thing is for each person to find out which category she belongs in and not be in the, in the wrong category. And if she is a traveler, not to fight against it. And I think most people do this naturally. And, and, and just... Uh, accept the trade-off and realize that certain groundedness, stability, continuity that you might want, you're not going to have and you're not going to look for. And the settlers are going to miss out on certain wide horizons and, and sense of excitement and discovery, I suppose. But it's a great way of thinking of the world. Well, I mean, I think um, when I think of it now, because you've mentioned that to you, thought, well, you, I'll never feel like I you know, sort of belong. Mm -hmm. So it allows you to just be yourself all the time because you're always an outsider. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'm thinking about people from different cultures, including in my own family, who um, the d various ways in which they've wanted to become American. They haven't. But the various ways and the language that they use to become American. And this kind of brings me to the idea of America and the way that America is seen from the outside, which you have reflected upon a lot in your writing. So one thing that I think I remember you saying in, in an interview was that uh, people fly into LAX and they know oh, I'm in America. And then they get out of the, they step out of the airport and they realize that the America that they've envisioned is not the America that, that they're experiencing. So um, what are the perils of that envisioning, that, that kind of putting America on a pedestal? What are the challenges of that? Because so many, I would say, you know, most of the world outside of America does that. And most of America does that, too. Yeah. Well, you're right. I think America is the name we give to hope and to possibility in the future tense. And we need such a place in the world. Uh, when that movie Lost Horizon was created about this never-never Tibet, and it was actually shot in California... The reason that it spoke to people and was remade many years later is people n had a need to believe that there was somewhere on the, uh, on the earth where they could live for 100 years or where their cares would be behind them or where they could construct a life in the light of their dreams. And America's been that, and I think it's a wonderful thing. i speaking as an immigrant myself uh, of Indian ancestry, and India is mired in, the, in the, some of the rivalries and wounds of 3,000 years or more. 
somebody who grew up in England, uh, and England has a very truncated, circumscribed sense of possibility. I couldn't wait to get to America, and I think America has made good on, on its promise to me. You're absolutely right, because it's the epicenter of images in the age of the image, that America is beaming out versions of itself around the world at the speed of light, and many people are recoiling from Sex and the City and Desperate Housewives, and many other people are responding with excitement to Hotel California or the Beach Boys or uh, the land of promise that they've seen in, in movies. And both are illusions, they're projections. We're all in our platonic caves looking at the play of images. But I do think America represents a possibility that isn't anywhere else in the world. Um, I've chosen to live in Japan, for example, but Japan would never accept me, would never um, count me as one of its own, and Japan doesn't have the huge horizons that, that California has. So I, I remain a believer in the part that America plays in the world's imagination. It helps to know that it's a delusion, but delusions can help you the way that placebos can. Uh, most of us like my parents, arriving in America, feel that they could do things that they couldn't do at home. And that feeling is a self-justifying prophecy. And then they do do things that they could never do before. And then they get back to their loved ones in Armenia or India or Vietnam and say, here in America, even if you start off with nothing, you can be everything. And I think that's a, that's a great thing that I know from my travels most other countries don't have because they're so set in their ways. Uh, of course, part of the illusion that, that, that happens, I spent two weeks in Los Angeles airport because it's a terminal of dreams, as you were saying, for, for the whole world. And uh, most people in Tibet, let's say, when they visualize America and California, see Brad Pitt and Michelle Pfeiffer and Juju Roberts and arrive here, and most of the faces they see are Chinese, and the ones that aren't are from Mexico and Ethiopia. And so uh, Hollywood's dreams haven't caught up with the reality, and so they are shocked, because uh, America has become a land of immigrants, not of the privileged blonde royalty that, that, they, that they imagined. But I still think they're going, they wouldn't regret coming to America, and that most of the lives they could lead here uh, are, are a lot better. I think my problem has never been with uh, foreigners coming to America. It's just that Americans don't go out to the rest of the world. And I think there my travels have revealed this huge disequilibrium that almost everywhere I go, whether it's Cuba or Vietnam or uh, Africa, people I meet there know much more about America than we know about them. And insofar as we're lead living in a global neighborhood, the poignancy is that those people dream of coming to America, but will probably never have the resources or chance or freedom to come here. So those of us in America who do have the, the, the time and money and, uh, and opportunity to go there, it's up to us, I think, to initiate the dialogue. Um, and we've, it's a strange situation where America probably is the country that recently has been most trying to change the world, but least interested in listening to or hearing or learning about the rest of the world. Um, and so I haven't always been a great admirer of America's official dealings with the world, but it's still a lovely thing that America is home to everywhere. Well, you bring up Cuba, and, uh, you know, I went to Cuba, and I was only there for three weeks. I remember I, I had met a Cuban there, and I don't think he knew what McDonald's was, mm -hmm. which I, I, I understand is your restaurant of choice. And now they're thinking of lifting this ban of travel between America and Cuba, and I know you have a deep love for Cuba. Uh, there's a certain romanticism that it, I think it, by the sounds of it, plays in your life, or at least I'm projecting onto you, it definitely plays in my life. Is there a fear that Cuba will become this yet another place where Americans come and put their you know, big foot, their big stamp on, and possibly change the face of it? 
There is a big fear of that, which is why I'm telling all my friends, go to Cuba as soon as possible while Fidel is still alive and before some radical change happens in whatever direction it is. But if that radical change happens, if McDonald's floods into Havana, you and I will be the losers, but the Cubans won't necessarily. Uh, and my experience has been whenever I travel around the world, uh, if I ask the people in Nepal, would you rather have McDonald's and Britney Spears and MTV and tourists or not, they always say yes. Uh, and we fortunate travelers who go around the world sometimes want the places we visit to remain in this picturesque sense of isolation and remoteness and actually of deprivation. We are keen to use planes to go and see them but uh, and uh, to have access to the internet and to, to enjoy McDonald's french fries whenever we're hungry, but we want them somehow to remain pure. And I think that can be an unfair, almost a kind of colonial, imperializing instinct. So it would be lovely if the Cuban people could choose what they want and inevitably they'll, they'll want to hold on to what they're so proud about in their culture and they'll want to have more freedom of movement and contact with America because that's what they hunger for. And inevitably the, idea, the reality won't match the perfect ideal that they will construct in their heads. I don't think they will necessarily be sad uh, to have the chance to come to America partly because when I was traveling in Cuba, most of the Cubans I met wanted to leave Cuba as, as, uh, just if only to see the alternatives and then they could make the choice of coming back to Cuba, but they haven't had that choice for a long time. So, um, and so I, my, I've, I, you know, most of the cultures in the world, and Cuba among them, have been around a long time and weathered many political changes. And I don't think they're going to be transformed at the core as soon as McDonald's comes to town or Madonna or whatever we regard Starbucks as, as the terrible influences. Uh, and uh, here in California, you and I will probably, after we finish talking, uh, go to the yoga studio, the Thai restaurant in our Japanese car and then listen to African music. And we're just the same people we always were. And so I think all the world can rejoice in having access to many cultures. And that doesn't mean that they're being transformed against their will deep down. I think that's very astute. Jamaica Kincaid did this really beautiful piece called The Native and the Tourist. Um, it was a written piece, and then she also narrated it about how the tourist goes into a, a foreign place and says, please don't change. you know. And, and all the natives want to do is grow and develop and escape that kind of um, the ways in which they feel held in or suffocated or bound. It's a really beautiful piece, and I think it, it it's a perfect reference to that. So this will be my final question. Uh, the economy is it's challenging, and I'm sure that there are young people that are graduating from school, and, and they have dreams and hopes, and probably being a writer is not the most advisable thing for them because, you know, I'm sure their families are, or their society is encouraging them to do something more reliable, although we've come to found that find that reliable isn't so reliable. Do you have advice for young journalists, young writers, um, based on what you've learned in your life that you would, you would, just, you would just impart um, to someone that is aspiring to maybe live the kind of life that you have or at least be a writer or journalist? Yes, I would say definitely be a writer. Go out into the world. You'll never regret it. Just as you were saying, you'll never get rich. If you are looking for a Porsche, a steady life, a steady job and a big house, this is not the profession. On the other hand, if you are looking for infinite riches, a constant challenge and daily illumination in your life, which I think are probably sustaining most of us more than the, the other, um, this is the way to go. And we were talking before about how writing helps you to understand your life and find out what you care about, as you wouldn't otherwise. Uh, writing 
helps to, you to make sense of what is otherwise often a chaotic blur, and actually both to attend to things and then to put a shape and a, uh, and, and a narrative on them. Um, and it's a, it's a great adventure. And uh, as, I, as I was saying before, I've never regretted just going out into any part of the world, getting to know somewhere very foreign, and then using writing as a way really to justify the, the travel. Uh, and it's, as you said, in these uncertain economic times, somebody like me, who's basically a freelance writer, is in extremely shaky ground. But I don't think it matters. Uh, and most kids coming out of college now know, as I didn't when I got out of college, that if you go to Thailand or Nicaragua or Bolivia tomorrow, you can comfortably live on a couple of hundred dollars uh, a month. Uh, you're, if your salary is low, it's still more than enough. And you're going to have experiences that will be the envy of all your friends, even if they're um, investment bankers on, on Wall Street. Uh, it's amazing how cheaply one can live around the world and how comfortably, too. Uh, and most of all, of course, it has its shadow side, but it's keeping one constantly engaged in a way that it's often hard to be uh, at, at home. So I'm so excited if anyone does want to be a writer now. And it's harder to be a writer now because the other media is so much more seductive. And if I were a literary-minded person now coming out of college, temptation would be to be a filmmaker or to start doing stuff on YouTube or whatever. And I can understand why people do do that. But I still think writing has a part to play that no other medium can, can keep up with. And when I go to Tibet these days, for example, I realize that somebody Googling it at home, somebody uh, watching the Discovery Channel, somebody with a video camera can see and do all kinds of things I could never do. But there's still something I can do as writer in terms of catching the pauses and the, the absences and the silences and the nuances inside myself and I hope uh, inside the people I meet. There's something there that writing can catch that no other medium has yet been able to better. And so, although it's unfashionable and outdated technology, I'm all in favor of it. I, I could say the same about radio, too. I'm in favor of radio. <laughs> all right, well, thank, thank you so much. Those were the words of Pico Iyer, journalist, writer, traveler, biographer, and speaker. So learn more about him and his work, explore. He has interviews and articles in lots of locales, and they're all worth reading. This was part two of a two-part interview. My name is Sunny Katenjin. This is Sight Unseen, shedding light on the creative world through candid conversations with the artists of our time. You're listening to Resonance, 104.4 FM, the UK's first radio art station. <laughs> <laughs>